0: Hey, y'all.
1: Welcome back to Eco Chic. I hope you are having a really good day. It's so nice to be hanging out with you today. Today's episode is one that I am unbelievably proud of. Frankly, I am so excited to be bringing you some immediate current event conversations around the latest IPCC report. On Monday of this week, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, a group of climate scientists hosted by the United Nations, released their latest climate report. A little bit of context, we are currently on the AR6 report, the sixth assessment report by the IPCC. Assessment reports are broken down into three sections, and they are authored by three different working groups. So in October last fall, we received our first working group report on the physical impacts of climate change. This second working group report that was released on Monday is focused on the current landscape of adaptation and the socioeconomic impacts of climate change. And the third working group report that will be released later this year in the spring will be around solutions and mitigation. The IPCC is really the most respected and acclaimed group of scientists on the climate crisis in the world For some context, the IPCC is a group of scientists that synthesize and summarize the latest and most current climate research from all over the world in all different languages. So this is the most confident, most comprehensive gauge of climate science that we have on a global scale. So it's a really, really big deal. These AR6 reports are a really big deal. And this particular adaptation and socioeconomic focused working group to report has really deeply influenced the way that we're currently talking about governance, colonialism, human communities in the climate crisis. And I feel like while the internet has been kind of taken aback this week, there's so much discussion online around this report. Again, it's a really big deal. It's really easy to spread disinformation around this report. It's really easy to misunderstand some of the points or topics that are presented in this report. So I wanted to make sure that we were getting the most accurate understanding of this AR6 Working Group 2 report, and I'm so, so excited and so thankful to be able to speak with two lead authors on this report, two lead authors from the North American chapter of the Working Group 2 report, Drs. Libby Jewett and Kirsten Holzman. Both Dr. Jewett and Dr. Holzman are scientists with NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Dr. Libby Jewett became the founding director of the NOAA Ocean Acidification Program in 2011, ever since she has been building, organizing, steering the NOAA OAP Enterprise. In 2007, Libby co-led the NOAA-wide meetings of scientists to develop the NOAA first-ever comprehensive ocean acidification research plan. She is co-chair of the Executive Council of the newly formed Global Ocean Acidification Observing Network. Libby mentions to us today that prior to becoming a lead author on this latest working group to report, she has contributed significantly to national climate reports and really serves as one of the nation's most influential voices when it comes to climate science and oceans. Dr. Kirsten Holzman is a research fishery biologist within the NOAA Alaska Fisheries Science Center. She serves as co-lead investigator on the Alaska Climate Integrated Modeling Project, a multidisciplinary collaboration to evaluate climate change impacts on the Bering Sea ecosystems, from the physics of it to the fishing communities, under various future management and climate scenarios. She's a member of multiple national and international writing teams for technical reports on climate change and marine ecosystems. And Kirsten has a really comprehensive understanding of the technical and more social natures of climate change and climate solutions in fishery communities. I'm really excited to be speaking with both Kirsten and Libby on this conversation because While they are both major voices within NOAA and they are both experts in marine systems, they have very different insights on a lot of these projects. Interestingly enough, they actually mentioned to me before we started recording that prior to working as lead authors on the North American chapter of this Working Group 2 report, they didn't interact very much within NOAA because they are in different centers, they're on different coasts, and this was a really fun way to talk about something through the lens of marine systems and climate solutions that they both have different but complementary expertise on so it was a really cool conversation i was really really proud to host it and i have to thank kirsten and libby and the noaa team for being so flexible and available to speak with me about this super recent report i'm really so proud of how quickly this episode came together and is able to be released because again it's so timely and it's something that we're hearing a lot about within the news, on the internet, all around, because this is the latest temperature check, you know, no pun intended, of how we're doing when it comes to climate change and society and governance and the socioeconomic impacts. So it's a really big report. It's a really big deal. And I'm so thankful to be able to speak to folks that are the experts on it. So I hope you really enjoy this episode. For some additional information, if you're interested in reading the IPCC report, I'm going to go ahead and recommend that you just read the Summary for Policymakers. It's less than 40 pages, and the report itself is thousands of pages. I did put out on social, on TikTok, and on Reels, I shared some information on how to actually read these reports if you're so inclined and what you should be looking for, how to break down these reports in a way that is tangible and digestible, because at the end of the day, this is scientific literature. It's kind of hard to just pick up and read front to back. That's not really the point of scientific literature. There are also a lot of great takeaways from this conversation, a lot of definitions for us to keep in mind, and I'll go ahead and share some graphics and visuals of those on social as well. If you'd like a little read-along guide, if you'd like something to share with your friends and family when you're talking about this latest report, and if you're interested in sharing this information, I highly encourage you to share this episode, of course, for selfish reasons because I want as many people as possible to understand this information and to democratize this information. But on a larger scale, I feel like when we talk about climate change in the news and mainstream media, it's really scary. It's really intimidating. It's a really big, glaring issue that people are uncomfortable about. And the vast majority of us don't understand climate science. That's a big reason why I started this show and why I like to talk about the things that I do, because Climate science should not be intimidating, it should be easy to understand, it should be friendly, and it should meet you where you are. So I hope that that's what this episode does for you, especially in the context of the biggest climate report that we have right now. I feel like you're going to get something out of this. I think it's a really valuable episode. Like I mentioned, you can reach out to me on social if you're so inclined, find the visuals for this, find a little read-along guide for the IPCC reports, at Podcast. wherever you want to find me. My links are always in the show notes. And you can also rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can now rate the show on Spotify. I want to be a five-star show over there. Follow it. Subscribe to the show. Make sure you never miss an episode. I'm really excited for y'all to listen to this. I'm excited to know what you want to hear about next. Also, a quick note, if there's anything we talk about today that you want to do a deeper dive on, such as compound extreme events, such as emergency management, such as why the polar ice caps are melting so much quicker than the rest of the earth. I have a lot of episodes on those things. So I'm gonna go ahead and link all of those previous episodes in the show notes as they relate to this particular episode. Some of them have guests, some of them are like quickie deep dive episodes. Climate Science 101, I got you. We will link all of that in the show notes. With that, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Let's talk about the latest IPCC AR6 Working Group 2 report. What a mouthful. Let's get into our conversation today with Dr. Libby Jewett and Dr. Kirsten Holzman of NOAA, lead authors on the North American chapter of the IPCC AR6 Working Group 2 Report. Enjoy. Libby, Kirsten, welcome to Eco Chic. I am really excited to have you both here today. I feel so honored and excited to be sharing this very current topic.
0: Thank you for having us. It's a real honor to be able to be on your show and and talk about the report. Really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us about it. Yeah, ditto that.
2: Nice to be here. Thank you for inviting us.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Before we even start talking about this latest Working Group 2 report, I'd love to hear a little bit about how you both got so involved with the report, because it's one thing to be a contributor or an editor. It's very different to be a lead author. So how did you both kind of fall into these positions?
2: Well, for me, I actually work on a topic in my day job that's focused on the impact of climate on the oceans that has to do with how the ocean chemistry is changing in response to rising CO2. And as a result of that work, I've actually been pulled into several iterations of the U.S. National Climate Assessment. And through that work and and realization how important it is to create these very synthesized, relatively easy to read documents that bring home the story of climate change. I decided I would put my name in the ring for the big global report, which is the one that we'll be talking about today. And I I feel very honored that I was selected to be uh, one of the authors of one of the many chapters. So that was my um, my gateway into the process.
0: Mine was similar. Uh, my day job works, I, I work on ecosystem management. And so naturally uh, accounting for climate change and variability is a big part of that. And work in particular in integrated ecosystem assessments. So we regularly assess the condition of various systems and provide that assessment to managers. And so that has led me over the years down the path of multiple climate assessments, first working with FAO and some other organizations. And so I similarly thought, well, this is a good opportunity to to bring some of the information we're learning from the regions I work in, which is mostly Alaska, but also the North Pacific, working particularly with fisheries and communities, bring the lessons learned. So the lessons of impacts, but also responses that are effective bring that to the national and international discussion so i was happy and very honored to be selected to be on the team and uh, it was an excellent experience i think drawing lines across multiple sectors and multiple disciplines is probably the most valuable thing I, I got from that is there's these synthetic themes of climate change across all sectors and responses that are really powerful coordination and planning, uh, that are effective for, for adaptation, for example. So it was really exciting to be on the team with people that are health experts and anthropologists and OA experts, Livy and others, uh, to see those parallels.
1: Wow. That sounds great. I'm excited to speak with you both more about this report, especially through the lens of your different, but complementary expertise. Quick break. I'd like to tell you a little more about one of our supporters here on EcoChic, the Oregon State University eCampus. Oregon State University is a nationally ranked leader in delivering degrees and programs online to students around the world. Their mission is to empower people like you, like me, with the skills you need to build a career and make a difference in your community. By pursuing a bachelor's degree online in the field of conservation and natural sciences, you'll develop the skills you need to understand, cultivate, and protect our natural world. There's a variety of hands-on programs that you can choose from, like environmental sciences, to position yourself as a climate change professional, or natural resources to study how human behavior impacts the world's precious commodities, or even fisheries and wildlife sciences to gain skills in habitat restoration, animal care, conservation, and a lot more. All Oregon State online programs are delivered by the same world-class faculty who teach on campus. One of the main reasons the OSUE campus program is considered one of the nation's most innovative provider of online education. Discover how you can make an impact and find the right program for yourself at ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash ecochic. Again, that's ecampus.oregonstate.ecochic. I'll make sure it's in the show notes. Back to the show. I feel like when we talk about this report, something that we need to understand at a very high level is the gravity of the situation, like we were speaking before we started recording about. It's not necessarily a matter of convincing folks anymore that climate change is happening. It's helping them understand the gravity of the situation. And I feel like when we talk about adaptation in particular, the big overarching theme of this particular report, there is this understanding, we have heard it a million times, that the most vulnerable communities are going to be the first and most severely impacted by climate change. I would love to hear a little bit at a high level what that means and if we could expand on that concept in the lens of this report.
2: A
0: couple of things that I think really are striking about the report. First, climate change has impacted every community, every sector, every ecosystem from the equator to the Arctic across North America. There's no place that we looked at or community that we looked at where climate change hasn't already had an impact or affected some aspect of livelihoods and well-being the severity of those impacts and how people and ecosystems respond depend a lot on preconditioning factors that are in the system. So systems that are more diverse or have more redundancy uh, respond differently to climate impact. And the same is true about human communities and individuals even that might have different livelihoods or options that really determines the outcome of the impact. And so how we respond as people how the ecosystems respond really does determine the strength of those impacts at least from what we've seen to date going forward depending on which path we choose as a global community the severity of those impacts can exceed some of our adaptive capacity and so there we'll see places where there are no more options under some scenarios but what we've seen to date is that communities and people that have inherently built a system of response around thinking about connectivity between ecosystems and people and redundancy and long-term resilience already in the planning and in the conceptualization of how they interact with the community, those tend to be communities and people that are more resilient longer term. And then a great example of that is indigenous communities in the Arctic. Obviously, changes in the Arctic are immense, but the ability to adapt to those changes and to Uh, respond in a way that minimizes the impacts in the short term, we really see a lot of that happening in indigenous communities. And so we can look to those communities to see examples of effective adaptation measures that are rooted not in necessarily a document they wrote 10 years ago, but in a way of thinking about the ecosystem, climate, and people.
2: I would say that was pretty (laughs) comprehensive. I'm wondering if we also speak about some very specific examples of people being vulnerable. And an image that comes to mind, of course, is Hurricane Katrina coming in and seeing the devastation that happened to the low-lying communities that were sort of below, almost below sea level, tended to be the lower income communities as well. And I think that image, if you kind of expand it out and think about other hurricanes or storms or effects of sea level rise, the way that our cities are built sometimes uh, makes it just sort of stacks it against the very people who are probably going to have a more difficult time responding to that whatever that stress is so i think that's just uh, an, ex- an example of how vulnerable communities can be i will say in terms of the resilience side my program actually recently and this is related but not exactly included in this report because the findings aren't even out yet, funded a project working with tribal communities in Washington state and Oregon. And the funding that went into that project actually enabled the groups to think about what resources they are dependent on from the sea and w- which of those are potentially maybe not gonna be around because of how ocean acidification is affecting those waters you know, where they harvest. And they, you know, were also thinking about how can we develop our community to be resilient to that and develop, you know, sort of food sharing networks as a result. Then the pandemic hit and they, but they were already thinking about those approaches to being resilient and they were able to use that food sharing sort of concept that they were developing to apply to people who were being affected by COVID. So that's an example where the best kind of adaptation is the kind of adaptation that it's actually applicable across multiple stresses or issues that are affecting. And that's one thing that came up in this report is that if you're, if you're just creating adaptation to this thing and not thinking about the other things that are gonna be affecting you, you may either create an adaptation that doesn't benefit you when the next thing hits, You know, overall, you're not going to be as resilient as you could be. So, we're hoping, you know, through this report and through our chapter on North America to push that idea of broader adaptation thinking.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that. And I appreciate that you mentioned this need for cross sectoral solutions. I feel like that's a really important theme that we don't hear a whole lot about, I feel, day to day when we talk about climate solutions in general. And I'd love to expand on this concept of ecosystem vulnerability that you both touched on a little bit. Could we better define what that means? What, it, what does it mean for an ecosystem to be vulnerable?
0: We actually spent a bit of time talking about this in the chapter, about what we meant by ecosystem sensitivity, resilience, and vulnerability. Uh, one of the emergent themes from the literature was around so redundancy within the ecosystem, the connectivity, and systems that are already under non-climate pressures not, have been altered through pollution or habitat degradation, tend to be prime for being impacted by climate change. It doesn't necessarily mean they will, but it it does reduce the ability to respond in a resilient way. And so you can kind of think about ecosystems being, by climate, being punched from multiple directions at the same time. And the more redundancy you have within the system, the more the system can absorb it. And that said, there's also some extreme conditions that have exceeded what these systems had evolved under. So things like marine heat waves, low oxygen conditions uh, that have just hit these punctuated hits to the ecosystems, even really resilient and biodiverse ecosystems had been hit pretty hard from these these extreme events. So I think there is also a scale issue to what we mean by resiliency in ecosystems as well.
1: Could we talk a little bit about Marine heat waves, because I
2: feel like that's something that I never get to hear about. I'll take that one. <laughs> the technical definition is that a marine heat wave is happening if the temperature of the waters of that area um, rise above some threshold for X number of days. And it can be, you know, a couple weeks to a couple months to even like a year. And the way we've come to understand this is that it's, you know, you're measuring it against the background natural variability of that system. Obviously, you've heard about bleaching events for coral reefs, that those are actually marine heat waves as well. And so organisms, all the things that are living in water in a particular area are sort of adapted to certain temperature variability and when the temperature of those waters rise kind of up and out of the normal variability and stay in that for an extended period of time that's what we call a marine heat wave it was only coined i think about maybe 5 or 7 years ago but now that we've we've coined it we're of course using the term more and more because there are these events that are happening more and more frequently Especially as all of the temperature of, of the surface waters of the ocean are slowly increasing with climate change. And so the opportunity to kind of tip it out of the normal variability or long term variability is it's just that much easier to do because all of sea surface temperature is increasing at the same time. And the projections, again, hopefully we'll be able to reduce our emissions and keep our total global increase in temperature below 1.5. But the projections that I've seen, we're going to be ready for a fair number of marine heat waves as we move into the future.
0: Yeah, no, I think you characterized it perfectly. I think the idea, of course, in the ocean, most species don't thermoregulate. So there's some mammal species and things that do, but fish experience temperature and temperature determines growth. It determines how fast they grow. It determines where they go, what they can tolerate. And Often, if you get towards the thermal limit, fish and and species like that will become lethargic. They stop eating. They eventually die. They can also become more susceptible to disease. So the temperature piece is both a direct impact, but it's an indicator of sort of what's going on in the system. And if you look at North America waters, we saw marine heat waves in every region, every coast, and that included warm waters nearer to the equator it's getting exceedingly warm and staying, it's that protracted warmth. So maybe a, a spike here and there can be tolerated, but when it gets really warm for a long time and the heat moves from the surface all the way down to the deepest parts of the ocean, there's no escape. And so that has impacts. And it affects circulation and chemistry too on the physical side and oceanography uh, piece of it. But we also saw it up in the Arctic, we saw it in the Bering Sea. So places like the Bering Sea will have seasonal changes It'll be very cold in the winter because there's sea ice covering it, and then it'll get warmer in the the spring and summer and get cold again. So a lot of variability in the background that the species are adapted to. But with the heat wave, it just pushed everything like Washington or California temperatures into these Arctic regions. And so it changes the whole setup of what species can sustain themselves and how much food they need to eat. And what we saw were many species collapsing and, and starving under those marine heat waves
2: the marine heat waves affect the species, of course, but it's also causing changes in economies and human communities as well. So just an example, I believe it's 2012, there's a marine heat wave in the Gulf of Maine. And it's now been, we look back, attributed to climate change, but also has caused changes in what the lobsters were doing. And the lobster is huge fishery, right? It's like the highest valued species, I think, or it always is like kind of competing with scallops. Because of the early and extended warming, the lobsters all came into shore early. And the system, the human community system that relies on those wasn't ready for them to be there that early, And it threw the whole fishery into sort of chaos. They kind of sorted it out, but basically the tourists weren't up there to (laughs) consume the lobsters and the distribution system wasn't suited for them to be coming that early. Now, because that's happened and because humans are resilient overall and we figure out ways to adapt, the community has actually created mechanisms for dealing with just that should it happen again different ways that they process lobster we can now save them for later for you know so sort of on the fly adaptation but it it is preparing that area for future shocks thank you so much for sharing that i was hoping to discuss
1: the socioeconomic impacts of climate change as understood through this report as well that was a very interesting overarching theme to me could we talk a little bit through the lens of your expertise the challenges of governance on climate change, on climate solutions?
0: Sure, I, I'll, I'll kick us off, Libby, and jump in. <laughs> so, you know, this is, this is an area of, of uh, particular interest for me, and in terms of how can I, as a scientist and, and the projects I work on and lead, contribute information that's actionable and help inform governance in a way that promotes adaptation, resilience, and prepares us for what's coming when what's coming is a huge range of possibilities. And so this comes down to, and we talk about this a bit in the chapter, I think in a nice way, uh, kind of thinking about the different levels of governance. And so the chapter talks about local and kind of facilitating individual adaptation and agency all the way up to national and international coordination across governance. What what we've seen today, what tends to undermine effective policy is both the sort of information that comes in being mismatched with what's going on, as well as who's making the decisions, maybe not including all the people that need to be at the table. So there's two sort of directions to approach it. And on one end, ensuring that you have a plurality of perspectives, diverse stakeholder voices that are meaningful and meaning that people respond and listen, and there's action that can go with those perspectives in the decision-making process so that you have multiple people deciding how to respond in a way that doesn't just benefit one part of society. So that's one piece. So Setting up governance to facilitate equitable decision-making is key. And then on the other end, ensuring that the information as scientists that we provide also captures a range of possible impacts and feeds that into the information. So people making the decisions need. diversity of information coming in as well. And so that includes everything from things like high resolution, super fancy projections and forecasts of heat waves and are they coming and what do we do? How big will they be? All the way to longer term planning around if the entire you know fishery moves north how do we now manage that and moves across a geopolitical boundary how do we manage that how do we coordinate data collection data processing integrated projects and these sort of physics to fishing communities sort of projects in the marine world are really helpful for that. So you start all the way at the base and you involve diverse expertise across all the way to the sort of analysis of risk and adaptation, which really does depend on the social and economic
2: impacts. What it makes me think about as Kirsten is speaking is the challenge, as she said, you know, we know that fish that people catch are moving north with climate change. And that's been documented not only for fish, but also for whole sort of agricultural areas are moving north and species that are on land are moving north. They're kind of tracking with the temperature that they like to be in. And one challenge in the U.S. is that the many fish that are caught in state waters are managed by states and they want to keep managing that even as the fish sort of move out of their state waters. So... You know, we have the challenge as fish move into Canadian waters, but also between our own states, there are challenges. And I think people are rising to that challenge, but it is hard for fishermen from New Jersey to want to give their ability to catch those fish to someone in Maine instead is, you know, it's hard to want to give that up. (laughs) So that's a definite governance challenge that we're going to need to deal with and are dealing with.
1: I'm so glad you brought up this concept of ownership over a geographic area of natural resources, if here we're referring to fish as a natural resource. The report included a section and a mention of colonialism. And I feel like I really appreciated that the people who I interact with who have been sharing information on the report have really attached themselves to this mention of colonialism because I feel like the environmental space in general has a lot to grapple with when it comes to colonialism. And I feel like online we've spoken just between folks that I interact with about the impact of colonialism on climate change. But here we have definitive research from the biggest, most respected body of scientists in the world telling us that colonialism has severely negatively impacted natural resources and those human systems interacting with them. In a sense, it's a little new for the IPCC to mention this. And I'd love to expand on it. I would love to hear a little bit of your perspective of the impact of colonialism on climate change.
0: Yeah, you know, I think this is that concept of the preconditioning that leads to the severity of climate impacts and the ability to be resilient. And I was really very happy that we we had some Indigenous contributing authors that provided content for the report And it was fantastic because it's a huge topic. It's really hard to synthesize down into something succinct. And so that's one of my favorite parts of this chapter, actually. In terms of colonialism, I can't speak to the effects of it, but I understand and have been trying to decolonize research in that. And part of that includes co-production of knowledge, respecting different knowledge, sources, ways of knowing things, and bringing those insights together in in a way of mutual respect to better understand the system or a problem and solve it. And so I think that's an essential piece of it. I think Libby, you said last week, it's all hands on deck with climate change, right? So we need every bit of knowledge and insight that we can to come to solutions that are going to be effective, and we have to do it quickly. And so that's part of that, bringing together multiple knowledge sources, multiple ways of knowing things, and multiple understandings of how the system can move forward in a way that's effective. And so that's part of that, for sure.
1: Thank you, Kirsten. That was really thoughtful. Quick break. Turns out, everything you think you know about probiotics may be wrong. Not all probiotics are created equal, and some of them are not exactly what you think. Good news, Seed's Daily Symbiotic is the real deal. It is a broad-spectrum, all-in-one probiotic and prebiotic in one really easy-to-take capsule, a proprietary formulation of 24 distinct probiotic strains in scientifically studied dosages. One of my big goals for this year was to get on top of my gut health. So I was really looking for something that was easy to take every day, incorporate into my routine, and I could pretty immediately see a difference. The daily symbiotic supports the benefits in and beyond the gut. So seed will support ease of bloating, healthy regularity, and ease of evacuation, if you know what I mean. But it'll also support your gut barrier, your skin health, your heart health, and your micronutrient synthesis. I've been taking Seed for a few weeks now, and I feel like I've definitely seen a difference in my skin health and in just how my gut is feeling day to day, but I was especially drawn to Seed as a brand and as a product because they have really great glass packaging and you can just buy refills. You don't have to buy a new package every single time. So it definitely supports my eco-conscious bulk buying nature in the home. I feel like by taking the Seed Symbiotic, I am doing something good for my body, good for my skin, good for my overall well-being, and I do not have to compromise at all in my values and the kind of brands that I like to support. So you too can start a healthy habit today. Visit seed.com slash ecochic and use code ecochic to redeem 20% off your first month of Seed's daily symbiotic. That's seed.com slash ecochic and use code ecochic. It'll be in the show notes. Today's episode is also brought to you by Ana Luisa. I love to accessorize. I have some basic pieces in my wardrobe, and I love to dress things up and change up my outfits with jewelry. And I love jewelry. I don't know what else to say, but sometimes it can be a little tricky to find jewelry that aligns with my values. It's from a brand that I respect and doesn't have a crazy environmental impact. I've heard about Ana Luisa for a while, And I was really excited when I did my deeper dive into the brand to learn that they are 100% carbon and water neutral, but also really, really pretty if you ask me. I do not have to compromise my values and my style to keep the planet in mind. I recently got myself this really cute, dainty little heart necklace. It's called the Open Heart Necklace from Ana Luisa that has little crystals on it. I like to layer it, and then I also like to leave it alone for every day. It feels really versatile and timeless, but still fun. Mm -hmm. They've got these really sweet little bracelets, they've got beautiful earrings for every day or for dressing up, and I just feel like the pieces are so timeless and so versatile, and again, crazy affordable. You can use my code ECOCHIC and get an additional 10% off your order at shop.analuisa.com. Go ahead, treat yourself and your loved ones, use my code ECOCHIC to get 10% off. I absolutely recommend them it's a great brand again like i've mentioned making beautiful sustainable jewelry so go check out shop.analuisa.com slash eco chic code eco chic Luisa again is a n a l u i s a i'll link it in the show notes and i'll also link that heart necklace that i just mentioned i promise you're gonna find something you love now back to the show i'd love to switch gears a little bit because we've talked about about adaptation and we've talked about managing ecosystems and long-term resiliency. The theme of the working group to report overall is adaptation. I'd love to talk a little bit about maladaptation because when I read that, at first glance, it sounds like you're trying to do the right thing, but you're just not quite there yet. And I feel like there's so much to unpack with this concept of maladaptation on a global scale what does it mean to be trying to implement climate solutions but just not being quite there
2: yet in terms of an example of maladaptation and i don't i don't have actual geographic area where this is happening but an idea as i noted have worked quite a bit on sea level rise and thought about sea level rise and how coastal communities and cities are and are going to be adapting to it. And I feel like one example of maladaptation could be the building of infrastructure to adapt a city or coastal community to sea level rise, giving that community, in some cases, a false sense of security that now it's all fixed and They can move right in, like right up to that wall, when in fact, we know the bigger picture is that, unfortunately, sea level rise is going to keep going up for a long time, even if we stop with our emissions. So we have to be careful about that broader, inclusive information and decision-making that we do around decisions like that because it could actually bring more people into harm's way than we had expected. Again, the intentions are good to protect people, to protect buildings, and to protect what we have. But on the other hand, we need to be aware that the threat is increasing, and we don't want to put more people in harm's way. So that's just an example of Kirsten New
0: Yeah, I mean, I think maladaptation as a concept is really interesting. I sort of think of it as Libby described as those sort of unintentional consequences of thinking that you've acted in a way that will give you some resiliency. So maladaptation can be at an individual level, so a near term response to extreme heat or a wildfire, for example might be beneficial now or essential even uh, now, but longer term can have impacts that continue to erode long-term resiliency. So, you know, I think of things like even how entire sectors might respond to fish moving from our own realm here, since we've been talking a lot about a fish movement. So fish move in response to a heat wave, fisheries go to follow the fish, they may now enter into areas that are sensitive spawning areas or into areas where there's bycatch with other protected species. And because they're different management realms maybe, or or different people interacting, there may be the impacts of one group's response to a change that has new impacts on another group or ecosystem. And the way to combat maladaptation is through coordination, through communication, through, we talked about this broad perspectives in management and decision making, uh, in order to make sure that you can see the landscape of how adaptation may interact and counteract each other. And not responding is also a type of maladaptation. (laughs) That's a response that may uh, have impacts in the
1: When we talk about adaptation, and particularly maladaptation, there seems to be this almost false sense of security we grant ourselves as communities or as individuals. And in a sense, I get it. Climate change is scary. It's intimidating. It is a huge, huge problem intersecting with all of the places our society operates. I'd love to know, given your interests and expertise What are some of your, dare I say, favorite climate solutions, climate solutions that we know are feasible, they're effective, they're adequate with what we are understanding about the climate systems right now, solutions that could really positively impact these areas we're talking about today?
2: I just want to start by saying that, unfortunately, we cannot adapt our way out of climate change. So given what we see coming, we will adapt. We have to adapt. We are adapting, but we also have to be obviously affecting the root causes and through that sort of buy ourselves time. I'll mention that the next report (laughs) that's coming out, the third in the series, is focused on mitigation. So that's how do we get carbon out of the atmosphere? How do we keep it from going into the atmosphere and all of the science around that? So um, don't want to sort of tread into that territory, but also highlight that, of course, that is the ultimate solution. We as individuals need to talk to our friends and neighbors and colleagues about the seriousness of, of what we know is coming and make sure that we're choosing the right things in our lives that can also lessen the impact on the climate we can buy wind energy and we can put solar panels on our house and but we can also be again as i said educating and working collaboratively which i think is even more meaningful is to be working in larger groups it feels like if you're working in larger groups you're actually having more of an impact so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it there, Like Kirsten talk, and I'm sure that I'm going to have some other ideas as she's talking.
0: Yeah, thanks, Libby. It's a super excellent question, and I appreciate Libby giving me a few minutes to <laughs> articulate my own thoughts around it. So 100% what Libby is saying is that you know we have to couple adaptation and mitigation for it to be effective. I mean, that's pretty clear from the literature that adaptation effectiveness is higher when it's coupled with carbon mitigation scenarios. So that's very evident. Makes sense. The more you push a system, the higher the costs of adapting and and dealing with those changes is going to be. So that is definitely the first piece. And naturally, favorite solutions are around measures that address adaptation and mitigation together in a kind of a collective manner. So we have a box, and I think there's a cross-chapter box as well, on nature-based solutions. And these are, they're not the only solution, but they're interesting because a little investment in something like a marsh or habitat restoration or conservation can lead to long-term returns and increase multiple things. So biodiversity can help with carbon sequestration and it can help with adaptation. So solutions that hit multiple marks are really uh, exciting. And there are some examples of that, but they take a little time to spin up. So the other thing is that We have to start doing, and we are doing things, we are reacting, but we, we need a collective coordination around adaptation and responding and planning for climate change that starts today, we can't wait till five years from now, we have to start today on adaptation and on mitigation. So the second level of my favorite ones is where climate information and the climate lens is brought into every level of decision-making. So an example from fisheries management is we have stock assessments, data collection that goes out and collects information about the biomass of where fish are, evaluates if that's you know a good level relative to some productivity baseline, Those surveys can be climate informed. The stock assessment itself can be climate informed. The advice then given to the council can be within a range of climate risk and climate projections. And then all the way up to how fisheries contribute to the economy can be considered with a climate lens. So weaving climate information and climate perspectives into every level of decision making and any solutions that do that, I like, I see them. Across the board in and freshwater, in and, and forestry, and in uh, city planning, those are the ones that I think have the most promise because if you don't include it, it could lead to maladaptation. And then in general, you know, there's this balance between introducing flexibility. So measures that allow people to have the ability to respond or to buy time to weather a a marine heat wave or some periodic event, those are measures that in some places are done intentionally. Emergency responses, financing to help get through periods of increased variability, those are all all helpful. And so having those introduced into traditional management, like things like ecosystem-based management, which has a longer term perspective, it's, it's helpful to have flexibility woven in smartly. It needs to be done carefully. You don't want to make it too flexible or things get a bit chaotic. But having that increased flexibility allows people and ecosystems to kind of respond to these new changes and and sort of plans for the uncertainty.
2: One thing I think that we all learned while writing this report is that there are a lot of tools out there that are being developed. And especially in the fishery space, I mean, Kirsten knows this better than anyone, you know, our models for not only how is the chemistry and the physics changing in our waters, but how is that affecting the ecosystem is getting more and more advanced with supercomputers, And hopefully it's right you know, what, what we're coming up with. But these are tools that we can bring into these climate smart approaches, as you've talked about. And that's exciting. I think we need those. <laughs> we need everything that we can get our hands on.
1: Wow. Wow. Kirsten Libby thank you so much both for joining me today in this conversation you both had such thoughtful contributions and insights and I really appreciate the opportunity to learn from y'all and if I may say I can't believe that before writing this report y'all were not working as closely as I assumed you were because you feed off of each other so well and have such a great dynamic in explaining a lot of these very complex topics so thank you again so much for being here and for joining
0: me. Thank you. And thank we, you. I think I share that surprise as well. As soon as we started working on things, we said, this is a this is a future for us, for sure. But thank you for I, your excellent questions and the opportunity to chat today.
2: I've always been a glass half old person and I always try and look on the positive side of things. And I, I think working with these incredible authors is one reason that I'm not uh, sobbing in the corner. But also I prefer to believe that humans are gonna figure this out. When pushed, we figure stuff out. That's what keeps me going. I feel like I'm bringing the information there and there's so many creative people who are gonna figure this out. And look at the COVID vaccine, You know how quickly we came up with that. It doesn't feel like it's that quickly as we get into our second year or third year, but it was fast and look at us. So anyway, I just wanna say it's hard to document how many things are happening and how quickly it's happening but I for one am optimistic that we're going to figure this out
0: yeah me too I just see like the discussions around climate change I used to have chats when we started this report even where people would ask is climate change real or what's you know you work on climate change is it something we can do anything about I don't have those anymore. Now it's what is the best solution or how do we move forward fastest and what can we do? So just that evolution and how quickly that's happened has given me optimism as well.
1: Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode with Drs. Libby Jewett and Kirsten Holzman of NOAA, lead authors on the IPCC's AR6 Working Group to Report. I really learned a lot. I appreciated this episode. I appreciated their very tangible descriptions of a lot of these scenarios and terms. And I hope you appreciated some insight from the experts on the latest big bad climate report. I like that we closed our conversation with some optimism because I feel like that is how we have to lead a lot of these climate conversations and how we have to remind ourselves we're doing a good job It's just about action. It's just about doing something with the knowledge that we now have. So again, thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks for sticking around. If you are here and you haven't written and reviewed the show yet, go ahead and do so on Apple Podcasts. You can do so on Spotify. Follow the show. Subscribe to the show. Connect with me on social. Like I said, I'll share visuals and definitions and a little read-along guide if that's helpful for you. And if you're looking to actually read the report, like I mentioned, I did share some tips on how to do so, and I can link that out in the show notes as well. Plus, of course, the additional deep dive episodes I mentioned at the top of today's episode around compound extreme events. If you're looking to learn more about disaster management, polar ice caps, anything like that, I will have episodes on all of those things down below. I hope you have a great day. Thanks again for hanging out, and I will talk to you soon. Love ya.
0: Seeking the truth never gets old.